I feel like if we start having these very closed communities, yes, it's it solves one problem of us not necessarily previously being allowed to celebrate our history and talk about our achievements and talk about the positive experiences that we have. But it stops us from sharing it with other people that perhaps also need to hear it to breed a bigger degree of tolerance and a bigger degree of community in a wider sense. Yasmin, welcome to the 21st episode of Ethnically Speaking. So as you can see, unfortunately, we don't have our right-hand woman, Anissa, with us today, but we do have our co-founder of United Melanin Group and one of our producers, Marisha Pink. Hey, Marisha, welcome to the other side of the show. Hey guys, this is really weird being on the other side, but thanks for having me. <laughs> I can only imagine. Um, so for anyone that doesn't know much about you or much about United Melanin Group, what can you tell us? So I guess I'll start with United Melanin Group. Uh, we were founded in April of this year um, as myself and uh, my cousin, Lucinda, who co-founded it. And we're basically a media company for the modern age trying to promote um, opportunities for people from the highly melanated communities. So we do that by creating content such as this amazing show with you amazing ladies um, and creating opportunities, creating platforms, creating opportunities to network so that collectively we can increase our visibility and increase our capacity for storytelling um, and sharing our experiences as told by us rather than for us. Um, and then when I'm not doing that, um, I'm also a self-published fiction author. Um, so I've written two books. I am perpetually writing the third. I'm hoping it will see the light of day at some point. <laughs> um, and I'm also trying to start a loose leaf tea brand um, that has a, a big sustainable element in it. So enough to keep me busy during lockdown, basically. <laughs> Nice. That's amazing. And so with you, we are three amazing, opinionated, curious and highly melanated women here representing the UK. We will be talking about anything and everything affecting our communities from pop culture to politics and everything in between. So forget tiptoeing around topics and technically speaking, because today we are ethnically speaking. Last week, we talked about whether or not it's a good idea to start your business right now in the middle of a global pandemic and in the middle of an economic crisis. Most of us said yes. So make sure you watch last week's episode to see why we said yes. And so today I wanted to just dive into that a little bit more deeply because apart from looking at the economic climate and things like that, we also have to think about money because some businesses take a little bit more money to fund than others. So I wanted to ask you guys, because obviously a lot of us have, have been made redundant, a lot, a lot of us are unemployed. So how do you start your business? How do you fund a business with little to no income? Oh boy, that's a big question. <laughs> uh, there are lots of ways in which you can do it. So some stuff, um, I'll be honest, I haven't, haven't necessarily tried. I haven't pursued some stuff. Um, I, I guess I can speak on with a little bit more of personal experience, but I would say that where possible, 
Um, and that obviously depends on what your idea is, if it's kind of a big product that needs manufacturing or if it's you selling a service. Where possible, if you do have any kind of savings um, or, you know, if you were made redundant, if you got maybe a payout um, and you can put a little bit of that aside, then that's always a good first option. I think it speaks volumes when you are willing to invest in yourself before you try to ask anybody else to invest in you. Um, you really need to show that you're backing yourself. And I think that also forces you to think through what you're doing <laughs> and whether you're actually willing to commit your own money to the to the cause. Um, and then if that isn't an option, which for many people it isn't, um, if you've got friends or family around you that may be again able to the back your cause a little bit can be an option. Not everybody has that. Um, not everybody is willing to take money <laughs> from friends and family either because sometimes it comes with strings and we don't always want the strings. Um, but I, I think probably the thing that has been most impactful for me, um, and this was when I was writing, uh, was crowdfunding. So when I was writing my first book, I very irresponsibly just kind of quit my job, went off traveling, did the hippie thing uh, and decided to write a book and then came back and I decided I was going to publish it. And the more I looked into it, the more I realized, actually, that's going to cost quite a bit of money to do it properly, to get it edited and proofread and to get the, the book jacket designed and everything. So it was around that time, uh, it was 2013, and Kickstarter had just come to the UK. Are you guys familiar with Kickstarter? As a, no, I think so, yeah. Platform? Yeah. So um, it was, there was a big educational piece, I'll be honest. I think now there's more people that are, are familiar with it. But essentially what you do is you create a campaign. Um, you normally make a little kind of promo video, I guess, and say, right, this is what I want to do. This is my idea. And it's not always business products. Uh, sometimes they're, they're artistic products or projects. So in, in my case, it was a book. I was treating it like a business, like this is something I want to keep doing. Um, and you create packages um, and then people pledge money to those packages so it could be anything from just pledge a pound and you know every little bit of money helps you don't really get anything except like good karma for doing that but a pound is a pound a lot of people were willing to give that away um, right up to invites to the book launch party with an overnight hotel stay and obviously signed products of uh, signed uh, copies of the book so typically it's products of the business that you plan to make or the idea that you have or the project you're doing. Um, and that's basically a way of doing pre-orders. But I think the thing that's really cool about it is that was a way for family and friends that want to support you to do it in a mechanism that feels a little bit less like a handout, I guess. Um, and then you've got all of the users on the platform itself. And I think the ratio is something like 70 30 so probably like 70 percent of the donations that you get will come from people that you know and the other 30 percent just come from complete strangers like i had um it was really random i had this guy um who's a chef who'd been imprisoned for fraud in the u.s who just like backed the campaign and wrote me i know i know right it was really really random okay. um so you got all <laughs> kinds of all kinds of weird and wonderful people but you you can then basically see the pledges going up and then the more people see that uh, a project's got you know a good amount of pledge towards a goal then it's encouraging like, okay this looks like it's going to meet its target but what's really cool about it is the funding is all or nothing so you really have nothing to lose right um people because if you think about something like a I don't know if you someone's making a watch I think I bought a watch on kickstarter once and 
they need a minimum amount to do a minimum manufacturing run. If you don't hit that amount of the target, then the project doesn't get funded and nobody nobody's money gets taken. So, and you can exceed your target and then you can add like bonus levels and stuff like that. So it's pretty cool in that way because it gives a good mechanism for people to pledge money, but they don't actually part with the money unless the project goal is met. And then it's incumbent upon you to deliver against that. But I think it's a, it's a same as doing like pre-sales. And so for me, I raised just shy, I think of 6,000 pounds, which was amazing because that allowed me to pay to have the book done properly to pay for it to be edited to be proofread and stuff and make sure you're putting out your best work so um there's other uh like crowdfunding type platforms where you exchange instead of just like sort of monetary pledges it's actually in exchange for shares and equity in the company um and obviously for something much bigger that's got bigger i guess aspirations <laughs> then that might also be an option but uh those are those are the things i think for me put you at the least in the least amount of debt up front, I guess, because everything is pledging towards like a future goal um, or you're relying on savings that you already have. There's obviously ways to to fund things if you go into loans and things like that. Well, I think that's when I was looking at this online and it was talking about, I think it was Forbes, was talking about this article of how to raise the money and they're saying that's one of the big things is not piling on a lot of debt before you even see a return because so many companies or when people step out you look i don't want to say there's so much competition but it's, we don't realize how difficult it is to get something off the ground like someone starts a restaurant you're like great i'll go and have some food but you don't realize like all the money that they've pumped into it and i just really like that social media or things like crowdfunding or peer-to-peer funding which is people going to people who have money and shopping their idea and then people will give money to those um ideas and help them to get off the ground it's just becoming more accessible in the 21st century and i really like that it's allowing people to be more entrepreneurial because i think before without social media it's very difficult to find those people to connect to or to connect with your uncle or aunt in australia who wants to support your book but you might not have the means to do it so i think that's really cool yeah i i I feel the same way i think for people starting a business i think they have to just kind of make sure they're in it for the long haul because i think sometimes we get this kind of glamorized version of an entrepreneur presented to us and we see someone who is financially stable we see someone who is in uh power we see someone who has control and we might think yeah i want that but what we don't see most of the time is all of the graft that it took to get there like we don't see all of the failed ideas we don't see all of the failed businesses before they made the one that we know of you know um so i think people trying to invest in their business should maybe understand that it's going to be a couple of years of the small money that you might earn from it going back into the business before it's going to be a certain like uh a certain source of income or even like excess income or anything like that um so i'm kind of i'm with you guys and like the kickstarters and the, the crowdfunding and all that stuff because i think that i think that something works for everyone for me I would have to probably just get another job because I'm the kind of person that if I want to do something, I'll just save for it because I just want to spend my money on it. Like the idea of being in debt, like really bothers me and really freaks me out. So I hope that (laughs) I never have to be in debt. But sometimes there are other people 
um, who are really comfortable with that idea. Like when they just, they run out of money and they're like, okay, well, I'll just take this loan. And they're really comfortable with that. They don't mind paying back. They don't mind paying back interest, but those kind of things just scare me a little bit too much. So I'm on the side of even, even right now, I would, um, you know, I'd deliver boxes for Amazon. I'd stock shelves at Tesco's just so that I could live comfortably and also fund my, uh, my business idea at the same time. So do you mean all debt? Like mortgage, all. student loan, or is it all. just all debt? You want to stay <laughs> away from all debt? All. <laughs> All of it. Okay. Yes. I think, I think it, I mean, it's definitely something to be mindful of. I think the difference between um, certain, there's different, different types of debt. So when you do the Kickstarter, for example, you have to think through how much money do I actually need? What am I going to use it for? Because you have to put all of that on your campaign page. You have to be really transparent. Otherwise, nobody's going to back your project. Um, you have to think through, okay, even if I have all these, I don't, in this case it was books, I have all these books and I'm going to sign them, how much is it going to cost me to ship them? How much is it going to cost me if I to ship a book to Australia because I've got a backer in Australia? So it forces you to think through the mechanics of it and think that you're spending. And I think what you're saying is really important, but I think it comes because people don't think through and plan. Most businesses don't have a profit for a very, very long time. So it, it's a little bit you know, these kind of, I guess, get rich quick schemes that people or, you know, these side hustles that people think, oh, I just need to make a product, make a little site, run a Facebook ad. And then magically next, I'm going to wake up in the morning and there's going to be £10,000 in my bank account. I'm not going to say it doesn't happen because I'm sure it does. But those are the exception and not the rule. Actually, it takes a lot of hard work, a lot of planning to have financial sustainability while you're not making any money. Um, and to then have that foresight yeah you're not you're not meant to be really taking money out of your business including a salary most most people that start their businesses don't take a salary to begin with because that's that's just how it goes and so you have to rely on funding from somewhere else and I think the other thing that is really great that you were saying is that that crowdfunding um or um, like equity crowdfunding where you give away a bit of a share in your business or peer-to-peer -peer lending is much more accessible than many other traditional forms of finance. So when you start looking at, I guess, bigger ventures like and getting angel investors, which is kind of people who've got a lot of money who want to put into projects or whole funds and venture capitalists and stuff, it's such a tight network. It's so very difficult to break into and it's not impossible but it is difficult to break into. And when, as I understand it, I've never tried to pitch for it, but from people that I know, um, it's very difficult first to get in the room. Um, but second of all, when people are uh, assessing an, an idea, they're assessing the idea as much as they're assessing the person that wants to execute it. Um, and so we've spoken many times on this show before about the difficulties that we have as highly melanated people. Um, if you look statistically and I don't have hard numbers to quote you but these you know they're quite easily found facts women underfunded as as business leaders if you look at the the statistics people from highly melanated communities underfunded so in some ways I feel like crowdfunding and things like that really level the playing field because you literally can reach out to your peers to your to your community and beyond it as well but some of those barriers that maybe lay in the way to traditional ways of funding business um, are removed. And it's also a lot faster. So 
the Kickstarter, you can run it. I mean, you can set the length of time the campaign runs. I think they, I ran mine for 30 days and they say kind of don't run it for more than 60 days or so. And they say typically within the first 15 days, I think within the first two weeks, most projects are funded. And if they're not funded by that point, they're unlikely to fund all the way. But that means, you know, from deciding you're going to do the campaign, get took a couple of weeks to get it ready, you could have, you know, in six weeks, you could have the money, basically, and be getting on with what you're doing. Whereas to try and put together pitch presentations, even just like I said, trying to get those appointments and then getting in and doing rounds and rounds and rounds and rounds of presentations and meeting this board of directors and this investor and this person and still not coming away with nothing feels like a lot of hard work <laughs> to me that is possibly for such little reward when there's so much inherent risk involved in business anyway. And I was reading on prowess.org.uk and it was talking about if you then have a fear of all this money that you need to find. Because um, like you said, I've seen people do crowdfunding um, online or GoFundMe and literally mm. it's been up for months and they're not raising the money that they need. And prowess.org.uk was talking about trying to leverage on the skills that you have that you can use to create your own product. So for example, if you do knitting or crocheting or you offer admin services or you fix things and you're a carpenter, skills that you can use to put online that might not need a lot of financial input at the beginning because basically you you are the product to a certain extent. And it made me think of um, Kira by London. I don't know if you guys know her, she's on Instagram. And I think she had a really interesting story. She's a fitness instructor. And she said when the first lockdown happened, none of her clients wanted to train with her online. They were just kind of like, no, if it's not in the gym, they'll, they'll take a pass. So what she started to do was use her Instagram and every day she would do one hour free of workouts at midday. And then after about two weeks of doing it for free, she said she's going to do a short subscription for like £15 and she'll do one workout every day for seven days. She didn't know how successful it was going to be. And she got like 9,000 people signed up wow. to the description. I am one of them. Um, and I've hey. done the math. It's like, it's over like a hundred thousand pounds every single month that she's getting from it. And I thought that was a really cool way to kind of leverage on the skills that you have and use something like a pandemic to say, how can I use what I currently have, but think outside the box. But I think also what um, Marisha was saying and what um, Luanda was saying in terms of then, it still doesn't mean that everything's home and dry because she's now had to make sure that her product or her fitness can actually be different from other people because since she did it, there are so many people who are copycatting off of it. So she's now had to bring in, you know, merchandise and have 16 trainers online and she's doing this and she's doing that. And she actually said it's actually quite exhausting. So I think that's something that I would say to people starting their own business because my mum started her own business and no one works as hard as you do when it's your business. Like you give everything to this thing so yeah just be mindful of that and yeah hopefully hopefully it's successful because i think so many of the things that we see now were started by people who had an idea and decided to run with it i think if yeah. you don't know you're never gonna <laughs> i think if you don't know you're never if you don't try you're never gonna know and something like uh is it kira london did you say her name is yeah um, yeah what she's done is really smart because when you're asking people to take a punt on someone that they don't know and they're unfamiliar with it's a big ask and a lot of brand building and a lot of relationship building starts with building that trust so 
by having that, you know, I'm going to offer you something for free. Here's a taster that yeah. doesn't essentially really cost you that much money, especially if it's in a on mass like that. Um, you know, if you're putting up a live class that pe- there's no, I don't think there's a cap is there on Instagram live of people that can tune in, then it's still just one hour of your time, let's say for potentially how many leads if you like and as you build up that trust with people then they come to rely on you and feel like okay I'm willing to part with money to do it and I think it's you know it's it's a really good thing to do right now people are adjusting to this new landscape that we're in and people are adjusting things that you never thought that you would get online or have to get online people are now having to adapt to it I know people that were terrified of like I hate doing anything online and put my credit card details on I just like live in perpetual fear of <laughs> on the online credit card fraud and like guess what now you have to get comfortable with it so I think anything that you can do to ease that and make people like for most people like, I love going to the gym so for me working out in my living room sort of defeats the point of getting out of the house and just kind of having a change of scenery but if we get locked down for three months, then you just have to deal with it. In which case, you've got to find someone who can keep that motivation up at the same level that you get from the buzzer being in the gym. And so if you can recreate that, that's great. Well, I want to not ask Marisha. I just started like, working out for, for quarantine. <laughs> Sorry, well, a lot of people thing. just started I, working out. <laughs> yeah, I wasn't an at-home person who worked out at all. Like, I had to be in the physical space of the gym. Otherwise, I'm like, I'm never going to do it. But with the first lockdown, I'm like, well, it's either I do nothing or I try and find a new way to adapt. You just so figure you really it out, yeah. that gap. And I paid more than £15 for the gym. So it was really genius what she was doing but I went to ask Marisha if we're saying that businesses don't make a lot of money maybe for the first couple of years Mm -hmm. how would you then say for people to kind of measure the metrics of whether they're moving in the right direction of their business so it's a really good question I think it that comes into the planning in the first place so you have to understand what it is you're hoping to gain in exchange for that period of basically not earning any money for a lot of businesses a lot of brands a lot of people doing personal service companies it is about building um a following right Uh, and I don't literally just mean okay just we have pure numbers right you can have I don't know 150,000 Instagram followers that's great we're talking about actual levels of engagement how many of those people are actually regularly consuming your content and therefore I guess basically being it's a psychology of buying and basically building that trust so that when you have something to offer them that they need to part with their money for that they're almost primed to do it I hate saying that because it sounds really manipulative but that's essentially what it is I have have another hat as a as a person that works in advertising that's essentially what it is Um, so you have to know really clearly what you're intending to do so if you know you are building people up and and people don't like to be sold to just off the bat right it's like you hate cold callers when they call you up on the phone it's like the online equivalent of of that same thing so I think having a really clear idea of what it is you're hoping to achieve for some people that is uh, a following um, and getting I guess a list of potential customers whether that's over email or whether it's a social following for some people it's about you know people give away freebies in other in other industries as well so if people are giving away free like free coaching sessions or gave away you know I've given away free books and stuff because I know I've got more books coming so if I can get you hooked on the first one and you liked it maybe you'll buy the next one and again not everyone's in a position to always do that or to just do it you know so freely but that's putting trust in people and then they'll they'll pay that back with trust and so I think you have to know 
what your long-term game is. And that's what separates, I guess, people in the get-rich-quick schemes who go, oh, look, we're getting locked down again. Last time it was really hard to get dumbbells. I'm sure people are going to want dumbbells. Let me let me go on Alibaba and like import dumbbells and like just sell them out. And that's fine. You probably will make money. It's the same as the people who went, let me get masks. Okay, let's bring in loads of masks. Everyone's going to want masks. Let me... So someone who was selling toilet paper for some ridiculous price at one point when, you know, when there was the run on the shops, all of those things to me aren't businesses. They are get rich quick schemes. They are, they are enterprising. I'll give them that. Like if you want to make a quick buck, but that's not building something sustainable. <laughs> it's not building something long, long term, right? Um, and building a business is a much longer term thing than that. So yeah, you just have to be really clear about what your long term goal is and know that you're making steps towards that. Marisa, you're out here knocking those eBay hustlers. <laughs> I'm not knocking them. I'm just saying know, <laughs> know, which, know which camp you're in, right? Like, for, for real. Because any, honestly, anyone can do it. The internet is a wonderful thing. Even with the, the tea brand that I'm trying to work on. So I have Alibaba because I'm trying to work with a few people on some packaging stuff. And all of a sudden, like all of the tradespeople just start saying, hey, do you want mask? I've got this mask. It's got this surgical grade this and this HEPA filter here. And I was like, this got nothing to do with my core business or yours. Why are you trying to sell me face masks? Do you know what I mean? That's madness. That's madness. But uh, that's it. But but people do things. I I just don't think business is meant to be that transient. Right. It's the the sort of, do you guys remember Only Fools and Horses? Yes, I do. Yeah, yeah, it's it's the like the Dell boy of it. Like this week, this is the hot item that I can sell. Wait, this one's going to make us a million, and you'll just keep switching from product to product and product. And yes, those things solve problems, but that's not a sustainable business, in my opinion. And that if if that's what you're trying to do, and you're trying to make a quick buck, have at it. If you're trying to do something a bit more sustainable, then that's not the way forward, in my opinion. So, how would you think about what would you say to people who want to like leverage assets? Because I was reading about some people actually will take money or equity out of their home or out of things that they have. When do you know that you've got this killer idea that it's safe to do that? Or would you say some or everyone's just kind of taken a risk to see if it happens? I think there's I believe in measured risks. <laughs> so nice. I, I nice. think I yeah, I, I believe in measured Calculated risks. risk. Calculated, yeah. No, that also Everything sounds really malicious risk, for some yeah. reason. Really? Calculate, <laughs> calculated risk. You, you did this thing and it was calculated. That's why, because it's, yeah. <laughs> it's cold and calculated and manipulative. <laughs> no, I, I think it's, listen, I think it's very, it, first of all, you have to be in a position to do that, right? So you have to be in a position where you have a, a house, an apartment, a, a expensive car, I don't know, jewelry that you can pawn, whatever it might be. You have to be in a position where you're asset rich and cash poor that you can do that. I think I would be willing to do it again if there was a plan. So if I had looked at it and gone to Luanda's earlier point about just people just kind of taking the money and getting themselves into debt without really thinking about, okay, well, what is the actual cost of this? Because it's not just what I borrowed. It's what I borrowed plus the interest over what period of time. What impact might that have on any other lending I need or any other finance I may need for anything else that's actually really critical to life that isn't my business so yes okay you can you can take money out of your of your house or I don't know I don't know how it works with other assets I'm just using the house because that seems like the most obvious one 
you have to, I don't think it's about being risk-free because I don't think that that's possible but I think it's about being as calculated but as meticulously planned as you can so really working out like okay if I take this money at what rate am I going to be spending it over what period and at what period do I expect to start having a return so that not only am I bringing my business back to zero but then I'm actually able to repay back into the asset that I borrowed it from and I don't think enough I, I don't think enough people will do that and I think perhaps if you do something like a startup loan or any other kind of specific business funding they'll ask you all those questions and they'll they'll go through it with you they'll make you have a cash flow forecast they'll make you have a financial plan so you have to do some of that thinking when you have asset finance they just want to you know typically they want to know that you've got another source of income usually to actually be able to pay it back or it's just coming out of your property and you can make your payments or whatever it would be so I don't think the checks are as rigorous as to the validity of your business idea and so I would probably go quite a way down the line of I guess product testing and whether that was kind of in like I said a free capacity just giving away a few freebies doing a few trial sessions to just see what the appetite is like and include in some of that some discussion around pricing. So I think last year I did a two-day tea tasting uh, workshop where I got people to try the first wave of the teas for um, for Leaf and Lato, which is the tea company I'm working on. Um, And that was amazing because it was about the tea and the quality of the tea, but we also talked about things like packaging and we talked about how um, how much do, are you willing to spend? What are you willing to spend if you go to have a cup of tea outside versus tea that you buy to have in the home? And it, lots of things that I guess were assumptions on my part. Some of them were correct, but there was a lot of them I was like, oh, I'd never thought about it like that. And the psychology of what drives that behavior and understanding that helps you to make better decisions. So I would want to go through a process like that before I then basically put my house on the line. Because if that goes, the business doesn't work out and the roof goes from over your head you're in a very poor position i think well this feels like at covid we're really giving people a chance to read well covid is going to give people a real chance to be innovative and just know that there is a lot of funding streams out there if they want it which is good to know so speaking of our work life it is said that most people spend a third of our lives at work and of course it's only natural that we're going to be making friends in the process but once you're in a position that is lower than the friend that you make or higher than the friend that you make in the company that you work for how does that work so do you think that you can be friends with your colleagues outside of work and how does it change with the dynamic if it's like a family-run business I think for me I'm very much lean towards the side of being side of being friendly rather than friends with the people that you work with because (laughs) I just feel there's just something in me I just for a lot of people at work I just don't trust them I'm not gonna lie to you like and I don't mean that in a bad way I mean to trust them in order to let them in my life because I feel like most people are there are to are there to work and to make their life secure and aren't at the workplace to try and make really, really good friends with people. If it happens, I'm not gonna block it, but I think in general, I'd rather prefer to keep the lines very distinct so that there isn't really any confusion if something difficult comes up. That's just me. None of your work friends got invited to your wedding then? 
a lot of people from work got invited to my wedding because these are people that I'd worked with for like four years and it's a very small office. So it was okay. like only a handful of people. So that would have been bad mind. Like, oh, there's only six of us, but <laughs> I don't have space for you. So no, like, like I said, I'm very friendly with the people at work. But for me, friends is some next level thing. You're the person I'm going to call when I'm down and out and I'm crying because I'm heartbroken or things aren't going right in my life. That's a friend to me. So I can be very friendly with people at work and chat and talk and keep up to date. But in terms of being like a friend, that's a very serious word for me. Yeah, no, I feel that energy 100%. And I think a lot of people get confused with me because I'm very sociable, like very sociable. I'm very friendly, like very talkative. I, I'm the type of person um, that, you know, I'll make friends with people on public transport and stuff, you know. So um, I I think for me, I've seen so many, in terms of the, the difference in position, I've seen so many people abuse their power in social situations outside of work. And I just try to stay a little bit mindful of that because it makes me uncomfortable and I don't like to play those games. And so what I mean by that is like, I've seen managers order people around um, in a social setting where people are supposed to be like letting their hair down and it's got nothing to do with work. Um, and I've also seen people use the leverage of them being in a position of power at work within social situations in a different way, if that makes sense. So knowing that, like, if you want to go to this party, no one's going to say you can't come because we know that it's going to affect us at work if we say you're not invited and then we go the next day and you've messed up my shift pattern because you're you're in your feelings about it. So I think it depends on the type of people they are because most of the time people who do abuse their power, just are, they're kind of insecure in their own life and they're kind of feeling like a little bit powerless in their life outside of work and so they try to like leverage onto a full sense of like worthiness if that's like not a horrible thing to say but essentially <laughs> that's kind of what I recognize going on um so yeah it just depends on the people that I meet but I'm um, yeah I'm with you in terms of being very friendly I've definitely made um long-term friends from people that I've met in work settings uh, but that, but say like if I'm working in a team of 70, that's going to be like three people out of the 70 people that I've met that are actually my friend, you know, instead of me just being like a friendly acquaintance with everyone else. I'm so surprised to hear you say this, guys. <laughs> like, so, so surprised. Maybe just really contingent upon, like you say, the size of the workplace where, you know, that can have such a big ramification if you make friends and you fall out with someone or you don't get along with someone. I, some of my best friends are people that I've worked with. And I mean, like not just going to their wedding, like it was nice to invite <laughs> a few people from the office. Like we've been on holidays together, we've been to weddings, been there when they've had like children. And there is, I, I kind of find this with lots of groups of friends, like even your group of friends that you have from school or a group of friends you might have from university or whatever, that you might have a group, but within the group, there's maybe one or two people that you like really click with, that you really vibe with. And once the group disbands, so when it's no longer convenient anymore, right? Because the, the big thing about your your work friends is that you spend most of your time with them. So it's actually easiest to go, oh, okay, like the day's wrapping up. I'm kind of, or we finished a bit late, kind of hungry. Are you hungry? Should we grab dinner? And then you just end up going to have dinner together or like it's mm -hmm. Friday. Should we just go next door to the pub and have some drinks or whatever it might be? Um, 
And then for a while you have that group thing where it's like, oh, actually I'm having, you know, I'm having, it's my birthday at the weekend. Come to my, do you want to come out for some drinks? I've got other friends there. Once you no longer work together, for me, that's then the real test of whether that's a friendship or whether it's like friendly. And there's nothing wrong. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with being friendly and like, you know, living in the moment. And some people are just for, for a moment, right? They're just for a time and a place. And that's the, 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 the space they were supposed to occupy in your life. But the real friends that come out of that, like that, I've got some real ride or die friends that have come from places that I've worked that have, you know, been there through the good, the bad, the ugly for me and vice versa. Um, and so, yeah, I find that, I find that very strange. I, I really, and I'm trying to imagine what, like, what my life would be like without those people. And I can't, I can't imagine it, but if it wasn't for work, they wouldn't have come into my life. So I think that goes into what we said a couple of weeks ago when we were talking about having relationships in work. And then that relationship psychologist said that um, familiarity and proximity aids attraction, but it can also, I I presume, aid platonic attraction as well. Like uh, the convenience of just being in each other's space all the time. Because to me, that's the same thing as school. Like you get to know the people in your class so quickly. We're spending five days of the week together and maybe five years you know, of our lives together, depending on what school you go to. So when we leave school, like, who are you still friends with? Like, who are you still hanging out with? You're not going to be tight with your whole class of 30, even if you were friendly with everyone. And everyone, you know, whilst you were attending school would have been invited to your birthday. Now, three, four, five years down the line, who do you still spend time with, you know? So I'm definitely open um, to, like, meeting people in any circumstance and having them become meaningful in my life. But it's, I think it's just a ratio thing with me. Like I'd say like 5% of any environment I'm in, that's where I leave with, leave with 5% of the, the people as a real friend. <laughs> I think, I, yeah, I mean, I've had one good friend that's come out of work, but I don't even know if I would say it came out of work because I knew her before. And then uh, we didn't really talk that much because we lived in different cities. And then we just happened to come together to work, to work at the same organization together. And it was honestly the best working time of my life that I've had up to date. Um, we shared an office together. So it was just me and her. And we were just, we did everything together in our work. And we were able to really collaborate our work projects together a lot. Yeah. Um, so that was a really great experience. But when she left the organization, honestly, I didn't realize how much of my job I loved because she was a part of it. Um, and I think that was a really, that was a really difficult thing. I had to learn to have this kind of new environment at work, but I wouldn't be closed off to that if it came again. I know that I just had some bad experiences because, you know, have you ever been at a workplace where there's kind of like friendship clicks? And this is when yes. I worked at a larger organization than the one, um, I have most recently and yeah what happened was certain people who were closer to the manager got much more favorable treatment and you knew who were the people who were going to get what they wanted at the workplace whether they were going to make sure that they never got to work over the christmas break or if they got the best work patterns or if their annual leave was always going to be guaranteed to be given to them and i think sometimes i just oh i just want to stay away from that like i i hate i hate clicks in general but work clicks can be the worst because you don't know if people are actually getting ahead or getting what everybody else should just because they're not on the inner circle yeah for sure i I mean i've seen it so many times and it it, 
Uh, for me, I just feel like because I kind of separate my like creative work from the work that I use to fund my creative work. And so I think I've been very privileged in the sense that when I go into these um, jobs that aren't creative, I'm literally just going there to earn money. And so I don't have to play these games to try and get to the supervisor or try and get to the manager because I'm literally just turning up to do the work enjoy myself whilst I work obviously but then go home so I feel like a lot of people the reason why these kind of things happen like clicks and um not knowing like who has your back and things like that is because people have an agenda and they have a reason to get ahead um and so like I've luckily been able to stay out of that for the most part because I don't have any, there's like nothing that I want from you, you know? Like I literally just am turning up here to do the work and leave. Um, there's nothing in addition that I want for, so there's no in ulterior motive for me, like spending time with someone apart from the fact that I like spending time with you. I think that's maybe where I'm just thinking back over, over it. And I'm thinking that most of those people that I spoke about were peers of mine for the most part. We were kind of at the same level, mm. I guess, in different teams. I think they're mostly friends that I had from advertising because it was just a very kind of work hard, play hard kind of atmosphere. So we work long hours. And then when you're finished, there are other people that are still awake, are the other people that you're just working with. But I guess we were different teams and stuff. So there wasn't that degree of, I guess, I, I mean, I think anyone who does that in terms of like cozying up to a, a manager or a superior is just a kiss ass, basically. So <laughs> I don't know if I want to be friends with that person anyway, because I, really I don't really rate that behavior. Um, but then I think even, it's true. It's true. And I think coming back on, um, on it, if you are in a position of any degree of authority or power, then you have to be careful about the people that you like how you play nice with people because it's really difficult like I've had I've had line reports who I you know I've had I've been I've gone been out socially with them and stuff but you do have to maintain a certain degree of distance only because at the end of the day you're still a line manager manage whatever the terminology is and I found that when you if you get too close like there's nothing wrong with taking an interest in people on a personal level like out just outside of the workplace because I also think that helps you to understand things that might be affecting their performance in the workplace and I think sometimes we really just to be very robotic about it whereas if you understand like okay actually I'm a whole person and maybe there's something else going on and that's I'm just having a bad day today that's why I'm, I'm not doing so well that you can be a bit more empathetic but if you're having a tricky time with someone you just need to kind of have a serious conversation with them if you become too pally pally and I don't know you've been out at the weekend and they've seen you like you know drunk off your face or whatever it might be it can be really difficult to maintain those boundaries or respect because it suddenly feels like I don't know you feel like this weird sudden like parent that suddenly like switched on them and it's like you know now we need to sit down and have a serious talk and that it blurs the lines a little bit so I think if it's on a on a peer to peer level, it's all right. it, it, it's a bit more. It comes carries a lot less risk than a something with a weird power dynamic. And I wouldn't want to be as well. I, I actually had a manager who before. nailed that power dynamic though. That's not a good so thing. Go. Though. I was going to say we'd spoken about it on the show before, where it's like if <laughs> you did get a. Um, if we did get a promotion or an extra opportunity, or like you said, you've been given your annual, whatever it is, I would never want anyone to think that that was on the basis of anything other than 
the merits of me doing my job well. So I feel like as a, as a yeah. line manager, as a superior, you need to be careful about the relationships you form with people that are, I guess, um, lower down in the hierarchy than you are. And in as the a, chain. Ju- as yeah. a junior person, I hate that word because like a lot of workplaces actually are quite <laughs> flat. No, but they are like, there is obviously on paper, there's a hierarchy, but things can be quite flat, right? We're all adults. Um, but you equally have to be careful if you're um, a bit more junior because you don't want to be yeah. perceived to be getting favours off people. The other thing I was also thinking as you were speaking is most of those things are also relationships uh, and friendships that have been formed with other women. I think the thing that I've experienced with um, forming re- friendships in the workplace with people of the opposite sex has been more interesting because it's almost like that's not allowed to happen. Like you're not allowed yeah. to just, you know, I had a, um, a project manager that I work with who literally like all my projects were the same projects as him. So we were literally in all the same meetings. We were in all the same, working on the same projects, same deadlines. So we used to just end up taking lunch a lot of the time because our lunch time was between the meetings that we were both in. So we'd just go grab lunch or, you know, he knew I was stuck on another meeting. He's like, do you want me to grab you lunch while I've gone out? I'm like, yeah, okay, cool. And it was, there was just, it was nothing going on, never has been, never will be. But this, like the little, the little whispers in the office and stuff, because it's just like, you, like, a guy and a girl can't just be friends. That happened so, to me in the office, Marisha. And mm. it was just, honestly, it was just the worst experience. And me and this guy would go home together because the local station was like a half an hour walk away from um, our office. So we would literally go to the same place together and we were working just outside of London and we were the only ones who actually lived in London. Everyone else kind of lived close to the office. And then this rumour spread how he and I, well, I liked him actually, and he had a very long-term girlfriend and it turned very, very ugly. It was honestly just the worst experience and he and I never, never, it never recovered. And we were, I would say we were friends. We were friends at work and there was just this really weird awkwardness after that. And it was, I hope, let me just say, I hope at the future places and the future where I get to work that I can actually make friends with people. But I think I've just had some really dodgy experiences that have just made me really want to keep Put you off work a little bit. and my personal life very separate. Oh man, that sucks. You know, I was going to say that I had a manager who nailed the, the balance um, because she... I thought you were like, going to say nailed a, nailed a worker. <laughs> <laughs> I mean... <laughs> She also, (laughs) come to think of it, (laughs) yeah, (laughs) come to think of it, yeah. (laughs) But it was funny because she was great. Like the, she, she was very honest and she was very blunt. So if we were messing up, she'd be like, this is how you're messing up. If you were doing well, she'd be like, this is how you're doing well. But then there were also so many scenarios where we could all be together and we could all be comfortable. And, you know, you said something about getting messed up on the weekend, Marisha, but we've seen each other messy. Like she can't judge me for being a mess because I've seen you be more of a mess, you know? And it was just, it was just the level. And, but then it never carried into any sort of like lack of respect or, um, you know, sometimes people don't recognize your authority if you're able to let your hair down with them. Like it never carried into that. And so she's one of the first managers that I had um, where she was really able to like to nail that dynamic. Um, but now that you mentioned the thing about the the guys and the girls, there was another manager who I was also friends with, um, but that I got like, I guess like judgment from, because I guess, I was a woman and he's a man and people just presumed 
that there's something going on when you wouldn't presume that when I'm hanging out with my female manager, but you think like I'm trying to do something with the male one. So it was just, I understand, yeah, where everyone's coming from. I, again, I just think it depends on who the person is before they got the job. Mm. I mean, it seems like we have opposing views on that one, but I just want to let you know <laughs> that we're at the halfway point for today's show, which means that we are giving you a brief few seconds to press that like button, press that subscribe button, so you don't miss a thing. So we first talked about ways to fund your business and then whether you should be friends with the people that you work with. But now I wanted to talk about both of those, about working with friends and people that you know. So I know you've heard of 40 Acres and a Mule, which was the promise that was made to former slaves in the USA. Now, this promise was the first systematic attempt to provide reparations to black people living under slavery. But the order was overturned in 1865 and it forced people to give back land in Georgia, South Carolina and on the Florida coastline to planters who had originally owned it. But now in 2020, it seems that we are turning things around. 19 families and friends raised money and banded together to buy just under 97 acres of land in Toombsboro, Georgia, because they wanted a because they wanted to establish a self-sustaining black community where they would feel safe. What I wanted to know is, do you think that this is something that we could do in the United Kingdom or would it just further divide communities? And do you think it's possible to kind of rework or work within a broken system or to fix a broken system? Or do we really need to ditch it and start from scratch? Um, firstly, I just want to say last week we talked about black history and the erasure of necessary black history and how we need it to be in school curriculums. And not only that, but we need it to be common knowledge for everyone, not just the black community. Um, and so looking at the whole 40 acres and a mule thing and how the what the families are doing now in 2020, in the 19th century, like in the 1800s, there were towns like black owned towns for black people by black people um and this is the kind of thing that is not common knowledge this is the kind of this is just like a snippet of the type of history that we should all know and before this I, i'd heard of black wall street but i didn't know any details about it and of course it was nothing that i learned in school it was just information that i happened upon in my later years so that's just something that's just a side note in terms of in terms of whether we should try and fix the system or ditch and start a new one i say either or both do either or do both like it i don't mind um i would just actually add that the system is not broken it's working exactly the way that it was designed to work it just was never designed to work for us so if there's anyone who feels guilt about you know trying to leave to start something new i just please know that you owe nothing to a system that was designed to disservice you like you you owe absolutely nothing I think the key thing to add on to the idea of that they were black owned towns, I mean, I would probably dispute whether, not whether we need to know about it, but I guess being in Britain, it's not really our history the way that it is America's. Um, and I think that 
reading about those black owned towns and I think the one it was in Tulsa and um, Black Wall Street which is mm -hmm. being heavily featured on TV programs at the moment which I think is really great so Lovecraft Country um, it was also featured on Watchmen um, limited series and they're really bringing this idea and talking about what happened in Tulsa because it was a travesty the town was burnt burnt to the ground basically 300 people were killed murdered um, yeah. Black, yeah were killed so it is something important to know but I guess for me, I'm just very in two minds about learning about American history as if it's our history. And then it doesn't really have us look at our own black British history, which is very prevalent here. But the point that I'm making <laughs> is, is that those black owned towns or those black cities served a specific purpose because there was still segregation. So even with Black Wall Street, something that I didn't know was that when it was burnt down, it was actually rebuilt which I didn't know about. Um, and with it being rebuilt, they said it really ceased um, ceased to exist and decline when segregation um, ended after the civil rights movement in the 1960s because they they were formed a specific purpose. So I really wonder at them trying to, this collective, trying to recreate that and whether, whether that's really the way forward. Now, they're not saying that they want to be exclusively black. I want to make that very clear. They're saying that it's going to be predominantly and they're going to really focus on having like black law enforcement, black police officers, um, black political systems, um, but all are welcome. But I don't know about creating a town so... Because I, I just wonder if that's segregation again. That's the kind of question that I have. But I, I, I want to hear what you guys think about that. <laughs> Casino under itching to say something. Go on. Yeah. Go on. And then, I'm I'm, and then I'm, 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 <laughs> I just wanted to firstly clarify that when I said the thing about the Black Wall Street, like I specifically said, this is a snippet, like a snippet of the real history that we should have been taught. Because like we said last week, there's so many things that have happened, like the first university being in Africa, the libraries, the, the medicines, um, the things that we've created, like all of these things are things that have been specifically erased um, so that we're continuously taught a history that makes us feel powerless and makes us feel sub um, subvert. I don't know what word I'm trying to reach for there. Um, but inferior. Inferior. Well, let's, let, let's substitute it for inferior. Um, <laughs> because we, we, we act as if all of the things that we don't have are from lack of... Uh, you know, ability or, or something, but it's actually lack of resources because we, we've had the ability and we've tried to do these things for ourselves when that town was created in terms of Tulsa. And like you said, then they, there was a massacre, like you massacred the town because it, you just don't, you're not comfortable with the idea of us having a safe haven. And so I wouldn't call what's happening now in Georgia, correct? It's in Georgia, right? Um, yeah. Um, I wouldn't call what's happening in Georgia segregation. Um, it is actually just a safe haven. There is not really any place on this earth that a black person can go and not experience anti-blackness. And so the idea of us, oh no, we're making the problem worse by being together. No, like where can, where can we go and feel safe? Where? Like name a place on this earth that we can actually okay, go and I'm, 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 I'm gonna come in on that one. And I think that's what is very, dis and for me, I'm not saying it is segregation. I'm just saying it, like if we're saying we're gonna go off and be by ourselves to a certain extent and kind of create our own city and town, 
I just wonder about how that works for eradicating a problem that we can only eradicate together. I'm not, I don't even know if it's possible for us to eradicate in our lifetime. I don't think it is because these walls of systematic racism are big and they are deep rooted over centuries. But I think living away from other people, from other races, I, I, I don't, I don't know if that's what I thought. And I think, um, what you were saying in terms of anti-blackness and where can we go? There are places where there's plenty black people and they're the people who are living there and they're in power and there's predominantly them in the country. Like, it's not. The content. But, but I'm saying, if you're saying that, where can we go in the Western world? Yes. But I no. don't think we can say that there are places that the, um, where you, where it's predominantly anti-blackness as we would have here. Like, there is, it's obviously going to be seen in other places, but there are other places where it's just normal to be black and it's not frowned upon and I've been to those places and it is a completely different experience it really is but I, I think we need to be careful in saying in the western world for sure but that's not everywhere in the world where you feel like an outcast or different because of your physical appearance mm, okay that, so that's that's a little bit kind of different to what I was saying because there's a difference between like being in a place where there's lots of black people and being in the place where there's no anti-blackness. You can be in many countries where everyone's black, including the police officers and the president. It doesn't mean that there's no anti-blackness in there. Like you creating something from scratch. The woman said, we don't intend it to be exclusively black, but we absolutely intend it to be pro-black. What nation on this planet Earth has been created with the intention for it to be pro-black? And I'm not talking about the amount of black people in the room. I'm talking about the, every system, every country, every government has been colonized to an extent where there's anti-blackness in every single community, including our own black communities. So I don't say I need to walk down the streets and just see loads of brothers and sisters. That's fine with me. I can go to areas in my hometown right now and do that. I'm talking about a mindset and I'm talking about a systematic change. And that doesn't exist right now. So for us to kind of look at people who are trying to create it and say that we're not really fixing the problem, how are we not? How are we not fixing the problem? Because we've 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 looked at societies and cities and towns that are completely white already and we're not saying oh you guys are doing segregation because you're completely white. They're just completely white. And that's why I said do either or do both. Like if you want to try and create a new system within the one that we already exist in. I believe in that. I, that's fine. And like you said, it might not be something that we see in our lifetime. But if you also want to have your own land and start something from scratch, and this is why I always, whenever we talk about issues, I always come from the opinion of tearing it down and starting again. Like how many times are we going to try and work with something that's broken before we start something new? And that's why I talk about abolishing the police. And that's why I'm like, yeah, you want to create the Freedom Georgia Initiative? Go and do that. Go and have a safe haven where we've actually created it to be safe for us and not just happened upon a place where there's lots of black people created something to be safe for black people that's the difference i think we're just going to have to agree to disagree on this in certain areas because <laughs> I, I, I honestly think some of the things that you're saying i disagree marisha what do you think because you're our guest speaker what do you think weighing on this I, one? oh how i feel so privileged i i'm <laughs> probably somewhere a little bit between the two um so i think coming back to what sophie said about confusing not confusing but um looking at the the american perspective on on black history and and black experience is different from the uk experience there's obviously yeah, overlap, there's obviously similarities i 
remember being very, very vividly being on holiday in Florida um, and we went to stay with some friends and it, was, it wasn't even late at night. It was just dark. So I don't know, it was like nine o'clock at night. Um, I have a younger brother and he and my friend that we were staying with were just racing each other up and down the street, right? They're just, just playing. In the middle of one of the races, uh, my brother's shoe came off, his trainer came off. And they got, he finished the race and he got to the end of the street and then uh, a car turned around the corner, right? And my brother, he was, he was so young. I don't even like, I don't know, maybe seven, maybe, maybe seven, maybe eight. So in his youth and his naivety and his unawareness of the world, saw this car around the corner, thought, oh no, like this car's going to come and drive over my, like my brand new Nikes trainers and started running back down the street to get it. And my friend and his next door neighbor, so the friend is black, next door neighbor was uh, Indian, started screaming at him going, stop running because you see black boy running down the street at night by himself in a residential neighborhood. They something's going to happen to you. They're going to ask questions later. And that was really my first experience of the, how, like nothing happened. It, it was actually a police car. It was actually a policeman lives like on their block. So he kind of knew me so down. is like, what are you guys doing? Had a chat with them. But obviously knowing what I know now and obviously growing up a little bit and, and losing some of that naivety, you can see how something so innocent could turn so quickly. So I do think I, if I, if I try to imagine that scene happening here, even, even in the present day where things are heightened much more from an attention perspective, I wouldn't feel that same kind of alarm in my chest. Like, oh God, this might end really badly if you're just running up and down the street late at night. Like it, it, it's not, I guess our, our police don't routinely carry guns. It's a little bit less of a, less risky. So I think that's the first thing we are, we are looking at very, very different. Like you literally just can't walk down the street minding your business and and feel safe and that that everyone has a right to feel safe um do i i think it exists to a certain extent that's not orchestrated in the way that the freedom georgia initiative is so even if you take london as a whole or like greater london uh which where you know where i live where i'm based when you have um immigrants or uh, first generation, second generation, et cetera, et cetera, people tend to gravitate towards familiarity and building communities. So if you look at the whole, the whole of London or actually lots of parts of the UK and, you know, there are very distinct areas and very distinct pockets where you will find a large population of the Afro-Caribbean community, a large population of the Indian people. And people feel safer and they feel more comfortable in that. And I think that's a natural tendency to gravitate towards things that are a shared and familiar experience. So I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I don't think that we need to police that or that needs to stop. And I think that offers a degree of, of sanctuary and safety. I think in the UK though, doing something like the Freedom Georgia thing and, and deliberately going, you could, you could absolutely do it, but deliberately buying up land and trying to kind of, I guess, enforce like community rules and community projects and stuff like that. I'm, I think I'm kind of with Sophie that I think that it might actually breed a bigger problem. So I, I don't, yes, the system is broken. The system was never designed to, to fit us. But do I think that further segregating, whatever word you want to use, that sounds going to work. I don't think so. And I think the reason I think back to that, and I like very simple examples. So they talked about having like schools and stuff in this thing. And yes, absolutely. We need to have, um, a better representation of black history in the school curriculum but I went to a, a 
a non-denominational school, people from lots of different cultures, all my school friends are from all over the place. I learned so much by being in that environment. And I'm, I learned a lot, but they learned a lot as well. And I think that's where a lot of our open-mindedness and our tolerance and a, a bigger worldview comes from. I feel like if we start having these very closed communities, yes, it's it solves one problem of us not necessarily previously being allowed to celebrate our history and talk about our achievements and talk about the positive experiences that we have. But it stops us from sharing it with other people that perhaps also need to hear it to breed a bigger degree of tolerance and a bigger degree of community in a wider sense. And so I think that would be my worry about kind of segregating stuff and and especially from like such a young age when things can get ingrained. If all you only ever see, like I remember going to um, across the road from our house where I grew up um, as a Jewish family and I used to play with their daughter. She's the same age as me. And then one day her mum said, do you want to stay for tea? And we stayed for tea. And she had a younger a younger sister. And the little sister literally halfway through tea went, why is your skin black? And I remember seeing the mother literally like spat out her tea. was like, oh my God, mother, <laughs> shut up. Like, oh my God, I'm mortified. I'm going to send this kid back across the road. And she's going to never be like, never send my daughter here to play again. But that's because um, she, you know, they were a lovely Jewish family. The, the parts of the neighborhood had a lot of a big Jewish community. She spent a lot of time going to a Jewish nursery, a Jewish school, going to synagogue at the weekends. She just didn't really see anything outside of that and didn't understand it. And then there's no one around her on a day-to-day basis that she can ask about these curiosities. So if a black girl comes to tea, <laughs> then she's going to be like, hey, I've been I've been saving up my questions. I've been watching you from the window. Like, how come your <laughs> how come your skin is different to mine? Like, what's going on here? And but that was like a really lovely moment. And I was I gave like a very sort of basic answer, which was just, well, you've seen my mum and dad and you've seen, you know, that my my mum is Indian. My dad is Jamaican. And I said, and you've seen your mum and dad. I said, so you get that from your mum and dad. And we just left it at that. But I just think the segregation of stuff will stop opportunities like that because then the, if you, there's no need for you to go outside of the community. And that's, that would be my worry about, about introducing it in the UK. I don't think it's, I don't, I think it might solve part of a problem, but it breeds a bigger problem. I mean, I think that there's so much more to be said on this topic. And maybe, as um, Luanda was saying, segregation isn't maybe the right word. I know I was saying that, but I understand it can bring up ideas of, like, apartheid or what went on in America. I was just trying to think of a word that meant, you know, separating yourself from. But I really think that what they're doing... I putting your money behind your idea as we talked about um, in the first issue that we talked about is a powerful thing. But I guess... I'm just wondering how it looks and how it breeds unity across all. Because I think for me, that's the end goal um, of getting rid of racism. But like I said, we could talk about this a lot. And I also want to talk about some other women who are putting some money behind their dreams. There are women who paid over £1,200 for a money and manifesting course, which they paid to an Instagram life coach who offered them this program. But they were very unhappy with the results because they said they didn't get the wealth and success that they were hoping or were promised. It makes me want to ask you guys, do you think that you can manifest success? And is it something you can be paid or you can pay to be taught how to do? And what do we think about these social media life coaches? Are they the real thing or is it just a big con? 
<laughs> I was trying so hard not to laugh. It's 1,200 pounds. <laughs> I mean, it's a madness. I'm not going to lie to you. I just... It's if I have to pay you 1,200 pounds for wealth and success, something is going wrong here. Well, it's whose wealth and success are you manifesting? I think is the bigger <laughs> question here. Like, you know, round up a couple of people paying you £1,200, you quid too. No, I mean, listen, I think, I think, first of all, I think that's a ludicrous amount of money to pay. I will say that I do believe in the notion of manifestation and of manifesting things and positive affirmations and positive thinking. Um, I think we spoke about it a little bit on, on the episode last week. I don't think in and of itself that's enough I think it would be really um naive to think that you if you just sit there doing your money mantras every day that magically you're going to wake up and you're going to be a millionaire like you do actually have to do something and do some hard work but I do think that your mindset and the mentality that you have plays a big part in that and you'll hear lots and lots of entrepreneurs and successful business people talk about their daily habits and talk about the mindset and talk about routine and all the things that they do to put themselves in the best possible headspace to conduct their business in the best possible way for success. So I do think there's something in it. You definitely don't need to pay someone £1,200 for it, in my opinion. Like, so much stuff is available for free, first and foremost. Like, there's this wonderful thing called YouTube. You can go on there and click, like, a positive affirmation, manifesting, whatever you want. And you can find all that stuff pretty freely, if, if not cheaply, um, you know, all the big um, uh, self, uh, personal development, self-help, whatever you want to call it, gurus, the Tony Robbins, the Brene Browns, like all these people, they've all got books, like the books are not £1,200. They all kind of teach you the same thing. But the, the end point is about you just having a positive mindset. And I think we, I think most people, I could be wrong, you might be about to shut me down, but I think most people can agree that if you put yourself in the best headspace, then you put yourself in the best um frame to pursue stuff and particularly if it's something to do with uh, a business or just like success and wealth and stuff there are so many challenges there are so many setbacks that you need all the kind of like positive mental energy that you can get so there's nothing there's no it's not a bad thing it's not gonna stop you from being successful on its own it's not enough um as for the social media life coaches <laughs> So so I would just say to people, do your homework. I think there are some genuine people out there. I think there are people that are actually qualified to do these things and to help you and want to do it for the right reasons, which isn't making a quick buck from you by trying to sell you a pipe dream um, or sell you something that you can get for free. But I think I like I personally have been looking more and more into coaching and stuff, both as a as something to purchase, I guess, so to have coaching on different different aspects of business and life and stuff, and also as a possible like sideline um, something because I just quite enjoy like helping other people, and it's a bit of a minefield. So you you don't need a qualification basically like anybody I could go tonight and throw up an Instagram and make some pretty posts with some nice aspirational quotes and make a little website and you know get my my next door neighbor to give me a little testimonial like you actually need surprisingly little to get up and running and look legitimate so I guess all I would say is that in order to distinguish between those people who are a bit of a con and a bit of a hack and don't really know what they're doing try to look for some degree of qualification or education or ask for 
like ask to speak to someone don't even just look at the testimony like the quotes that they put or like the videos that they put that literally like I said could be their next door neighbor their cousin their mom whoever it is actually ask to speak to one of their clients before you part with your money that's the only thing I would say I guess for me I'm not sure if I'm really here for manifestation to be honest <laughs> I like I feel that a lot of it is common sense so I think definitely what you're saying, Marisha, thinking positively, because I'm someone I can definitely tend towards worrying and thinking, thinking negatively about situations. And it's only since being with my husband, who is very positive, and it's kind of like being in that environment, well, either I'm going to bring him down, he's going to lift me up. So hopefully, luckily, it's the second one. But <laughs> when you do start to think more positively, 100%, it changes your perspective on things. And I think that with manifestation... I'm someone who's quite, I would say I'm probably very religious. And I think that a lot of the things that come out of manifestation are very spiritual. Um, correct me if I'm wrong. So, and it feels like there's certain things that you would teach in religion, but it's kind of minus some of the religious aspects, but we keep some of the other things. So this idea of thinking positively and um, working hard and having faith and having trust um think yeah all these things are things that i see when like when yeah in terms of like reading the bible and so it really feels like it's a very spiritual thing but we're trying to market it now but without the religious aspects of it if that makes sense so i think i think a lot of the stuff they talk about manifestation is good stuff but i think some people are very deep into it and when it starts talking about um start to think the feelings of what you would think if you were there and in so saying some people write the check because you're going to cash it one day or go and swim in the swimming pool that you know is going to be yours one day that stuff for me i'm just like i don't know <laughs> so i'm gonna say i don't know see it's interesting what you just said about spirituality because i consider myself a spiritual person and i recognize that it is i <sighs> Okay, so for me, like if I was to talk about my spirituality, I feel like I'd probably be more on a level with a religious person than I would be with an atheist. Like when I, you know, I mean, like when I start to get, um, like I've, uh, when I start to talk about it, I think I'm going to be more understood by a person who is religious rather than a person who believes in nothing at all. Um, but I'm here for manimus. <laughs> I was going to say manimus. 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 No, I'm here for manifestation, but the difference with me is I feel like the things that are taught online, they miss a lot of things out, I think. And I think okay. if you are someone who believes in the law of attraction and you believe in the ability of your intentions and all of and all of those things, you have to understand it well-roundedly. And I think sometimes, especially when we see examples like this, like that woman was asking for people to pay £199 per month. And like Marisha <laughs> said, like, I can put together a slideshow if that's what people are paying for. Um, so, <laughs> so maybe you should. Maybe that's your business idea, Luanda. Does it need a lot of cash to start up? Just to know this. Well, well, do give great if you guys don't know, Marisha is... Marisha is Marisha is like presentation, 
<laughs> Number one, she's gonna do a sick PowerPoint and Marisha, you need to start True. a side of 109 pounds a month. You can teach for sure. Forget, forget the, the actual slideshows. You need to teach people how to make them. Like that's your exactly. business. Like I'll show you how to be like me. I will get your power on point. Okay, I'm done. Um, yeah, no, I was gonna say there's a lot of aspects that people miss out. Um, and okay. so for me, I feel like probably the two biggest ones that people ignore um, is like firstly everything is everything and secondly gratitude so when I say everything is everything I strongly believe that every living thing on this planet if it's a human or an animal or an insect or a biotic living organism everything is connected and I feel like as a human race, we've become so desensitized to that connection and to harming that connection because it in turn harms ourselves. And so sometimes people might pay attention to what they want, but they don't pay attention to how they're treating people. And all of this comes into play. And on the flip side, again, there's gratitude um, where you might be paying attention to what you want, but sometimes it can make you ungrateful for the things that you have so if you want a new car and then you're getting in your car every day and you're thinking to yourself how much you hate your car and you're annoyed and all of those things like I don't think that's the recipe for receiving but if you were to go into your car every day even if you want a different one and just be grateful that you can drive to work and that you can be comfortable and you can listen to the radio you can put on the central you can put on the central heating you can put on the heating in the car and things like that you don't have to walk miles or you don't have to get public transport or anything like that then I think that sets you up in a better space um so i think those two things amongst others are things that are left out of it a lot of the time which is why people are kind of like not really um like enthusiastic to take it seriously um because people don't really have a well-rounded well-rounded understanding of what it actually means and what we can actually affect in our lives whilst we're being grateful for the things that we have and whilst we're treating everything on the planet including the planet itself well you know then the thing is i don't disagree with that whatsoever because i guess for me this is why i find manifestation um a really tricky concept to get because like i said what you're saying makes sense to me because i would say i'm a christian this idea that yeah. i believe that god created us right so everything is connected everything is connected and was made to live and inhabit this world together and that's why i'm talking about i guess in the previous topic about i don't see how us trying to um be separate is going to help us to live better together because i feel that like we were made to live in communities with with people and everyone and i guess the gratefulness 100 percent like again, linked to Christianity. So I guess for me, that's where I find I find it difficult because I feel like it's taken out certain aspects of religion, but has packaged them, packaged them as manifestation. But I think that they're things that are definitely going to make your life better. Being grateful and being aware of your surroundings and working hard and being positive. These things are going to help you be successful. I just wonder if we really repackage things with a different name and then put a bow of manifestation on it. I think you I think you need to look at it in a different way like the package is not manifestation the package is spirit, spirituality and then yeah, once you open okay. the box manifestation's one of the little things that come out of the goodie bag you know what I'm saying so like okay. only because we're <laughs> focusing on that for this topic but it's uh -huh. part of a spiritual belief and that's why I said you can't 
it's kind of the same thing that you're saying, but in a through a different lens, because you're saying like, this makes sense for my religion and you're picking and choosing the things from my religion to make it your own. But I'm saying this makes sense for my spirituality and people who are trying to pick and choose the thing that makes sense for spirituality, but not having the full aspects in, in, in every level of their life. Like, how can you think that you are on the right track to receive something good when you're treating humans bad. And whilst I believe that all humans are connected, when you harm someone, you are harming yourself. When you harm an animal, you're harming yourself. When you harm a living plant, you're harming yourself. So how can you do all of those harmful things and expect to receive positive outcomes? And then, so that's why people are picking the most, the most shiny thing, like, ooh, think this and receive it and we'll package that as a £199 a month course, which like Marisha said, yeah. might, may have just been a slideshow. And that's why, <laughs> that's where I think the biggest issue comes from. Like people don't look at all the spiritual teachings. They just kind of look at the one that they think is going to solve their problem right then and now. And it's more of a lifestyle rather than, you know, yeah, something that you can get on Instagram. And, and I, I would probably just... agree. Oh, I was going to say, I would probably agree with that. So I'm not religious. I'm not atheist. I would consider myself to be spiritual. Maybe not as spiritual as, Lu as Luanda. I'm like, I'm like working, on my, working on my spirituality, but I... <laughs> we're on a big thing. We're on a big thing. We're on a today, guys. Exactly. It's so true. <laughs> uh, I think it's it's... That's also why I think, because even religion, uh, in, in my opinion, being someone who's not religious in a, in a traditional sense, but I think these things are very personal experiences. And that's part of the issue, I guess, I have with paying someone a lot of money. Like you wouldn't, Sophie, you wouldn't pay, like you might pay to go on a on a course, on a, a retreat, or would like to, to be amongst people to talk about aspects of your religion, but you wouldn't pay someone to tell you this is how you be Christian or this is how, you know, you, how you talk to God or this is how, let me, let me for £1,200 teach you how to pray so that, you know, 100%. God is really listening. Like you yeah. wouldn't do it. It's a really personal experience. And so that's why I think you can assimilate all of the stuff that is in these, you know, hacky courses through your own growth and your own development, your own exploration, your own experimentation. And it is spiritual. And that just, you sometimes, even if you're not religious in that, in a kind of traditional religion sense you 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 have that belief in something bigger than you because we are just like this tiny little dot and so having a belief in something bigger than you and the connectivity of stuff helps you to I guess stay humble and then stay focused instead and understand how you can grow like as I understand without kind with without harming other stuff in the process so there we go I feel like we have just been getting started I'm not gonna lie but we're actually at the end of another episode so I want to tell you thank you for watching and listening to another episode of Ethnically Speaking we've loved every minute of it we hope you have too and if you have don't forget to give us a thumbs up but Help us to keep the conversation going. We want to know what your thoughts are. Do you believe in these lifestyle coaches online? Do you think that they're the real deal? Please let us know your answers down below in the comments. And if you want even more from us, don't forget to subscribe to our email list for access to extra 
Ethnic, which is a special segment for our Rise or Die fans, which is exclusively available via email, and the link for that will also be in the description. I, of course, have to take a moment to say thank you to our fabulous guest, Marisha Pink, who joined us today. She mentions that she's written some books, and if you want to go and see them and buy them, head on over to marishapink.com. She also mentioned this brand new tea business that she's going to be launching, which she kept from us, so we're very excited to know about it. <laughs> And if you want to know more about that and get 20% off your first order, head on over to leafandlatte.com and follow her on Instagram. And the handle is at leafandlatteco. If you want a summary of everything we've been talking about today, head on over to unitedmelaningroup.com forward slash ES021. The link will be in the description. If you've been watching us on YouTube, don't forget to subscribe to our channel and hit that notification bell so you don't miss a thing. We're going to be seeing you again the same time next week, but with the current new lockdown in effect, don't forget to wash your hands, wear a mask, Keep your distance and as always, stay safe.